welcome to the preaching ministry of the Agape Baptist Church in George, South Africa. Good morning, church. A special welcome to all our visitors. It is a joy to have you with us, and we are very glad that you are here. I'm also glad to see all the regular people as well, just to not create confusion. Uh, we are currently going through a series in Genesis, and so we go chapter by chapter through books of the Bible most of the time. Sometimes we stop for a specific topic, but we typically go chapter by chapter through books of the Bible, and we're in Genesis. So in Genesis 24, um, we're going to pick up where we left off last week. So far in Genesis Genesis, we've been taken on quite a journey. Last week, we were with Abraham as he was sorrowful. He was experiencing hopeful grief as he purchases land in, the, in Canaan to bury his wife, Sarah, who had just died. So we're, we're coming out of this time of grief, yet it was hopeful grief as he purchases land in the promised land. But now in chapter 24, we are told a a new story, a story filled with insurmountable obstacles, a servant's faith, the providence of God, tension, and finishing with romantic love. Yes, it's true. God speaks about God honoring romance in the scriptures. He speaks about romantic desire, romantic waiting, and then finding romantic anticipation and exhilaration. And God speaks of all these things in the context of honoring God through these things. So many people think that romance and the desire for for the intimacy of marriage are something that God permits with a sour look on his face. He's like, I'm going to permit this, but... Only for, a, only for a time. But very few people realize that God is the author and creator of romance. God is the designer of the great adventure of seeking, finding, and sacrificing for lifelong love. That's my definition of romance, of biblical, Christian, God-honoring romance. It's the adventure of seeking Finding and sacrificing for lifelong love. Mark 10, verses 6 through 8, and there we read Jesus' words. He says, from the beginning of creation, looking back all the way to Genesis 2, at the beginning, he says, God made them male and female. God made them male and female. Therefore, A man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. That is God's purpose, plan, and design. He made this. How could we ever forget the first wedding in Genesis chapter 2? The first chapel was the beautiful trees of the Garden of Eden. The first groom was Adam, who literally gave up a rib for that day. The first bride was Eve, who was so beautiful that she didn't need any adornment. And the first father to give away the bride was God, who created both man and woman, and who created the romance of that day and brought the woman to the man. God created that first moment of perfect, sinless romance in the garden. 
No unclean thing touched that moment. Now, since the fall into sin, we have never been able to experience that kind of unblemished romance again. We've not been able to experience that. But the scriptures make it clear that God has not abandoned the romance between a man and a woman. God hasn't just cast that off as some unclean thing he wants nothing to do with. No, that's not the picture we see in the scriptures. In fact, the Old Testament and the New Testament both agree that even in this fallen world, God still desires for most men and women to fully act out the adventure of seeking, finding and sacrificing for lifelong love. Genesis chapter 24 is one of those passages that reveal God's smiling face on the adventure of romance. But the story first begins with an insurmountable obstacle. Isaac desires a wife. And Isaac needs a wife for the promise of descendants to be fulfilled. God promised he would have kids. He needs a wife. But he's living in Canaan, a land filled with beautiful yet pagan women that he's not allowed to marry. Sometimes that's the way single Christians feel. They're surrounded by attractive people, but none of those people seem to truly love God. So how could they ever consider pursuing them romantically? That's the way that the Christian oftentimes feels. 2 Corinthians 6 talks about what does darkness mean? have to do with light. He's talking about the unbeliever and the believer. What does Belial, Satan, have to do with Christ? How could these people ever come together in the union of marriage is what the New Testament talks about. A Christian cannot marry an unbeliever. If you do, you're asking for pain and sorrow and fighting or even worse, to fall away from your love, your first love, which is Christ. Abraham realizes that his son is in an impossible position. He's almost like the first Adam who began naming all the other creatures, but nowhere was there found a mate for him. There was no one who was fit for him. That's what the Genesis talks about. And Abraham couldn't send Isaac away from Canaan because at this point Abraham is convinced that he and Isaac must remain in Canaan where God sent them and told them to dwell and to sojourn. They must stay there and trust God to provide the way for the promises to be filled. I mean, isn't that the life of Abraham summarized there? Go to the land. Stay in the land. Trust me to provide for the promises, to keep the promises. That's what we've seen over and over again. So we find ourselves in this situation. Isaac can't marry Canaanites. And he can't leave Canaan. And you thought finding a mate in South Africa was difficult. Finding a Christian mate in South Africa. We've witnessed Abraham doubt God. And in the past, he has attempted to save the promises in his own strength. But we've also just had this mountaintop experience where he is about to sacrifice Isaac because he is fully convinced that God is so faithful to keep his promises that he would even raise Isaac from the dead. So this moments of doubt, and these, but we're just coming off the high of this moment of faith where he's willing to sacrifice his own son. But what will Abraham's response be this time 
when he's faced with, the in, with this insurmountable obstacle to the promises being kept of finding a wife for his son. What we will find is that the major characters in this chapter will all acknowledge God as the one who sees to all things, the one who provides. And they will trust the Lord to make straight paths for their feet, even through these difficulties, these impossibilities of life. To begin with, let's just read the first portion of our story. We're going to read verses 1 through 9 together. Now Abraham was old, well advanced in years, and the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. And Abraham said to his servant, the oldest of his household, who had charge of all that he had, had, saying, Put your hand under my thigh, that I may make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and God of the earth, that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites, among whom I dwell, but will go to my country and to my kindred and take a wife for my son Isaac. The servant said to him, Perhaps the woman may not, may not be willing to follow me to this land. Must I then take your son back to the land from which you came? Abraham said to him, See to it that you do not take my son back there. The Lord, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my kindred, and who spoke to me and swore to me to your offspring, I will give this land. He will send his angel before you, and you shall take a wife for my son from there. But if the woman is not willing to follow you, then you will be free from this oath of mine. Only you must not take my son back there until there. So with this in mind, and as we see the servant again in verse 9, agreeing to swear this oath, and then agreeing to go on this journey, this journey that's just like, what woman is going to follow a stranger to come marry a man she's never met hundreds, if not thousands of miles away? As we think about this insurmountable obstacle, and as you think about what God has called you to do in your life, to be faithful through in your life, Let's go to the Lord in prayer right now and ask Him to help us as we study His Word. Father, thank You for Your love for us. Thank You for Your plan and Your design, even in, the, even in this, this idea of romantic love, of marriage, of, of seeking, finding, purchasing, sacrificing for. Lord, I thank You for this beautiful picture, and I pray that as we study Genesis 24 this, this story, this narrative that was written some 4,000 years ago, that it will, that the, the eternal truths that you have put in here, that they will shine through into our hearts, that you will drive away doubt, fear, and that you will replace it with hope and confidence in our great God. In Jesus' name, amen. As, as Abraham makes his final appearance in Genesis, we are given this testimony to God's steadfast love and faithfulness to him. The Lord has kept his promises. He had, as the passage says there, he had blessed Abraham. He had given him a son in his old age. He'd begun the process of giving him the land and he had made his name great, which God had promised. All things God had promised to him. And Abraham had been changed by these, these experiences by, by this, this, these displays of God's faithfulness, he had been changed. He's not the same man who left Ur all those years before. He no longer is attempting to save the promises out of fear. Instead, Abraham is acting by faith. 
Abraham is convinced that Isaac must not marry the pagan women of Canaan because they would draw Isaac's heart away from God. Isaac must also not leave the land of Canaan, but must dwell in the land as God instructed. So Abraham is seeing God's instruction, and he is seeking to obey God's instruction by faith. So Abraham acts according to this instruction, according to these convictions, and follows the only path given to him where he can obey the Lord and pursue the promises of the promise of descendants. So he is not going outside of God's will, and he is showing his desire to see God's promises fulfilled in his life. That's why Abraham commissions his oldest, most trusted servant to return to Haran to the north where his relatives lived in order to find a wife among the, the God-fearing descendants of Shem. And now, I use the word God-fearing loosely because we'll see that their, their, their understanding of the Creator God, these descendants of Shem, is mixed with some pagan ideas and this moon-worshipping culture that they're part of. So there's, we will even see later on that Laban, Rebekah's brother, that we're going to, you see it in this chapter, that his household had idols. There were, there were the family idols in that family. So I use the word God-fearing. There's a God-awareness and a fear of Yahweh, the Creator God. I'm not saying it was perfect or alone. They feared Him alone. But to some degree, they knew the God of heaven. They knew of Him. And Abraham wants his son to marry out of these people. With complete confidence in God's ability to provide, Abraham tells his servant to go to Haran and not to fear the outcome and he gives the reason why. He says, because God will send his angel before you. God will provide for Isaac a wife because God promised Isaac would have descendants. Abraham's confidence was placed in what God had promised. That's why he had confidence. This is how Abraham bows out of the Old Testament narrative. This is the last time we will hear him speak. He is faithful. Filled, confident in the Lord, completely convinced that God will provide for his promises, that he will keep his promises. Abraham trusted the Lord and the Lord laid down a straight path for Abraham to walk. And then God's angel went ahead of, ahead of the servant to secure the promised end. Did you know that the Lord has done the same for us? For every person who trusts in the Lord Jesus Christ alone to save them for, from the penalty of their sins, God has gone before them and secured the promised end. God has gone before you and secured what he has promised. Jesus has purchased our redemption before we were ever born. He then seals us with his Holy Spirit as a sign and security of our purchasing. That he has purchased us unto himself. And he has gone to prepare a place for our eternal life with him. At every step of our redemption, adoption into his family, and glorification, which is where we are made like the Son, like the risen Jesus Christ. At every stage, the Lord has gone before us. To secure the promised end. 
Abraham's words of encouragement to his servant are also words of encouragement to us. Trust in the Lord, for he has already gone before you. Let's look again at Genesis 24 to see how God sends his angel ahead of the servant and how God demonstrates his steadfast love and faithfulness to his chosen ones. And we'll pick it up in verse 10 through 27. Then the servant took ten of his master's camels and departed, taking all sorts of choice gifts from his master. And he arose and went to Mesopotamia, to the city of Nahor. And he made the camels kneel down outside the city by the well of water at the time of evening, the time when women go out to draw water. And he said, O Lord, God of my master Abraham, please grant me success today and show steadfast love to my master Abraham. Behold, I am standing by the spring of water, and the daughters of the men of the city are coming out to draw water. Let the young woman to whom I shall say, Please let down your jar that I may drink. And who shall say, Drink, and I will water your camels. Let her be the one whom you have appointed for your servant Isaac. By this I shall know that you have shown steadfast love to my master. Before he had finished speaking, behold, Rebekah, who was born to Bethuel, the son of Milcah, the wife of Nahor, Abraham's brother, came out with her jar of water on her shoulder. The young woman was very attractive in appearance, a maiden whom no man had known. She went down to the spring and filled her jar and came up. Then the servant ran to meet her and said, Please, give me a little water to drink from your jar. She said, Drink, my lord. And she quickly let down her jar upon her hand and gave him a drink. When she had finished giving him a drink, she said, I will, draw for, I will draw water for your camels also until they have finished drinking. So she quickly emptied her jar into the trough and ran again to the well to draw water. And she drew for all his camels. The man gazed at her in silence to learn whether the Lord had prospered his journey or not. When the camels had finished drinking, the man took a gold ring weighing half a shekel and two bracelets for her arm, arms weighing ten gold shekels and said, Please tell me whose daughter you are. Is there room in your father's house for us to spend the night? She said to him, I am the daughter of Bethuel, the son of Milcah, whom she bore to Nahor. She added, We have plenty of both straw and fodder and room to spend the night. The man bowed his head and worshipped the Lord and said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his steadfast love and his faithfulness toward my master. As for me, the Lord has led me in the way to the house of my master's kinsmen. There. This portion of the story is beautifully written and packed with so much detail. But for the sake of time, I will limit myself to the main point by focusing on the key phrases that are repeated in this entire chapter. First, the phrase steadfast love. This is the Hebrew word hesed, which emphasizes God's loyal love in action to fulfill his promises. Let me say that again. Hesed emphasizes God's loyal love in action to fulfill His promises or His covenants. God's love never stops working toward the promised end. His love is steadfast. It does not waver because you or I woke up this morning and sinned against Him again. That does not cause loyal, steadfast love has said to waver. 
If God has sealed you with His Holy Spirit, then He has promised to glorify you in the end. To conform you or change you into the image of His Son, the risen Jesus Christ. He has promised to do that. His said or steadfast love is not based on your perfect performance. said is based on the loyalty of the one who promised. Not on the perfection of the recipient of the promise. That's the point of this word. It's about the character of God. Not on our ability to perform. You may wonder, then what is there to keep me from continuing in sin? Just to get fat, just become a fat and lazy Christian spiritually and just to go on sinning. Well, be comforted if that's your concern. Because God is our perfect, loving, heavenly Father. He will no more allow you to keep on sinning against Him continually than a Christian father would allow his five-year-old son just to continually walk up and slap his wife in the face. Would you allow your five-year-old son to do that to your beloved wife without lovingly and convincingly correcting and disciplining your son? Would you allow that to continue? Be comforted that God is our heavenly, perfect, loving Father. Our Heavenly Father will graciously and mercifully, yet convincingly, stoop down and discipline each one of His children. Because to not lovingly discipline your children is to hate your children through your inaction, through not acting. You're like, whoa, Dan. Use the hate words. That's a little strong. Let Let me read it again. To not... Lovingly discipline your children is to hate your children through your inaction. Where do I get that idea from? Proverbs 13, 24 is the one that says it most clearly. Here in the book of wisdom, we read, whoever spares the rod, and he's talking about of discipline, the rod of discipline. Whoever spares the rod hates his son. But he who loves him is diligent to discipline him. It's kind of upside down in our world, isn't it? And then in Hebrews 12, verses 10 through 11, this is spoken about in relation to God's love for His children. Verse 10, The Lord disciplines us for our good. This is that training in righteousness, helping your child to turn away from his foolishness, to go towards a love for God. The Lord disciplines us for our good, that we may share in His holiness. Verse 11, for the the moment, right now, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. We don't like it. I never said, thanks, Dad. (laughs) It's just like, that wasn't natural. It doesn't seem pleasant for the moment. Verse 11 continues, but later, afterward, It yields, it produces the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Those who have been trained by divine discipline. 
by godly, loving discipline, it yields the fruit of righteousness. We become like the risen Lord, Lord Jesus Christ. God's steadfast love gives us what is promised, that we will share in His holiness and that we will yield the fruit of righteousness. This is our ultimate good, to be changed or conformed into the image of the risen Jesus Christ. God has promised to accomplish that. Second, we see the word faithfulness in Genesis 24. This is the Hebrew word emet, which emphasizes the trustworthiness of God. He trusts Him. He is worthy of your trust, is this word. Take these two words together, like the servant, the faithful servant in our story. Take these two words together, like He does in verse 27. And what we see is that God keeps loyal love and trustworthiness. Not because of our character, but because of His character. Because of who He is. Finally, we see the concept in, this, in Genesis 24. We see the concept of providence throughout the story. I say we see the concept because there's not just one word or phrase that is repeated. But no one could deny that this passage is emphasizing God's providence. Which is God's constant acting to accomplish His will. Acting in all things to accomplish, to bring about His desired end. Especially, you couldn't deny it, especially in how this passage talks about how the servant is led to the well and how he finds Rebecca, how she comes and is the wife for Isaac is provided. As some illustration, Abraham says in verse 7, God will send his angel before you. The Lord will go ahead of you to accomplish his will. We also see that the servant knows that God is the one who grants success. He says so in verse 12. And then in verse 14, he acknowledges that God has already appointed a wife for Isaac, saying, let her be the one whom you have appointed for your servant Isaac. The servant knew that if he found success, then it was the Lord who did it. In verse 21, he says, the man gazed at her in silence to learn whether the Lord had prospered his journey or not. It is of the Lord. The servant again acknowledges that God guides the footsteps of men in verse 27, saying, The Lord has led me in the way to the house of my master's kinsmen. Praise be to God for leading me in the straight path, because I trusted in him and looked to him. And finally, we see the providence of God and how Rebekah left her home with a water jar, headed to the city well, and arrived on the scene even before the servant finished praying his detailed instructions to the Lord about how he would know who the woman was. She had already left. She already had her water jar. And she arrived on the scene. It says, it specifically says, before he had finished speaking. Who is getting praise for this? Who is this passage pointing our eyes to? It's God. It's not Rebecca. It's not the servant. It's not Abraham. It is pointing our eyes to praise God for his sovereignty, his providential care for his people. This is our God. Steadfast in love, trustworthy, powerful to accomplish his will and to keep his promises. This is our hope. 
This isn't just a story in Genesis 4, 24. This is our hope that God is who he says he is. Our hope is not that we are powerful enough or good enough. That cannot be our hope. No. Our hope is that God is good enough, faithful enough, trustworthy enough, and powerful enough to bring about His glory and our good in every situation. It doesn't matter how dire or how insurmountable the circumstances may be, our hope is that He is who He says He is and that He is able to bring about our good from the worst of circumstances. We learned all about that in Romans 8.28 only a couple weeks ago. In Proverbs 3, verses 5 through 6, Solomon points us to the wisdom of placing our trust in God alone. And this is where the, the title and the, a lot of the ideas for this sermon come from. Proverbs 3, 5 through 6. And I encourage you to place these verses to memory if you have not already. Solomon writes these words to his own son, saying, Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding. Verse 6, In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will make straight your paths. Another way of saying, In all your ways acknowledge God, is to say, in all your ways, hope in the character of God. It simply means to believe that God is who He says He is, and then hope and act accordingly. That's what it means to acknowledge Him. It's to look at Him and to say with full faith and belief, You are God. I acknowledge You as God in my actions will then follow that belief. That's what it means to trust God and to acknowledge Him as God in all things. Trust in the faithful character of God. Place your hope in His loyal love. Drown your every fear in the ocean of God's providence. And He will make straight paths for your feet. So really what this passage is getting at. For the, for the sake of time, I must skip the middle portion of our story where the servant is welcomed into Laban's home, where he then retells the same story again, um, beautifully retells it to the family, and how he speaks of God's providence in all of this, and finally how Laban's family hear the story and they accept the proposal of marriage. I must skip that. I encourage you to go back and just read the whole chapter from beginning to end on your, when, you are, when you are by yourself. But for the sake of time, we'll begin reading again in verse 54. And the servant and the men who were with him ate and drank, and they spent the night there. When they arose in the morning, he said, Send me away to my master. Rebecca's brother and mother said, Let the young woman remain with us a while, at least ten days. After that, she may go. But he said to them, Do not delay me, since the Lord has prospered my way. Send me away, that I may go to my master. They said, Let us call the young woman and ask her. And they called Rebecca and said to her, Will you go with this man? She said, 
I will go. So they sent away Rebekah, their sister, and her nurse, and Abraham's servant and his men. And they blessed Rebekah and said to her, Our sister, may you become thousands of ten thousands, and may your offspring possess the gate of those who hate him. Then Rebekah and her young woman arose and rode on the camels and followed the man. Thus the servant took Rebekah and went his way. Now Isaac had returned from Beer Lahairoi and was dwelling in the Negev. And Isaac went out to meditate in the field toward evening. And he lifted up his eyes and saw, and behold, there were camels coming. And Rebekah lifted up her eyes. And when she saw Isaac, she dismounted from the camel and said to the servant, Who is that man walking in the field to meet us? The servant said, It is my master. So she took her veil and covered herself, and the servant told Isaac all the things that he had done. Then Isaac brought her into the tent of Sarah his mother, and took Rebekah, and she became his wife, and he loved her. So Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. Until there. I, I promised in the beginning that the story would end in romantic love. The reality is that this entire story is filled with the tension and excitement of seeking Finding and sacrificing for lifelong love. Romance is certainly not the only theme emphasized in this narrative, but it is alive and well throughout this entire story. Can you imagine Isaac's desire for a wife at the age of 40? It says he was married at 40. Can you imagine the blender of emotions that Isaac felt as the ten camels left with the old servant to go to Haran? I mean, he's seeing this this. Very, you know, he must love this man, but he's old, getting old and he's leaving with these 10 camels. And I'm just like, I don't know if I ever see him again. If I do see him again, I don't know what's going to happen. If I were Isaac, I would have required that the old servant pass a thorough eye exam before he left. I mean, these things are important. Who would the servant find? Would he find anyone? Would the woman come? Maybe she'd come, but would she be bitter at Isaac for the rest of their lives because she was dragged off to some no-name place living in tents in Canaan? You can tell the servant felt the weight of his responsibility in choosing. We're not used to a third party being involved in the seeking and finding part of, our, of romance, but for, the most, for, but for most of history, this was completely normal due, due to the significance and propriety required of this of the seeking and finding. Can you imagine Rebecca's excitement? As, as she is a young woman, she hears the servant's story. She hears and learns of God's providence in their meeting. She sees the costly gifts being exchanged and given to, to her and to her family, the clear sacrifices that were made in order to win her hand. And then finally, while Isaac is walking through the golden fields, wondering if that day would ever come when the servant would return with his bride, we read this, verse 63. He lifted up his eyes and saw, and behold, there were camels coming. And Rebekah lifted up her eyes, and when she saw Isaac, she dismounted it. It was literally like she jumped off the camel and said to the servant, Who is that man walking in the fields to meet us? The servant said, it is my master. 
It is the bridegroom. Then in verse 67, for the first time in in the scriptures, we have a declaration of marital, romantic love. Moses writes, Rebekah became Isaac's wife and he loved her. It's the first time that phrase is used in scripture. Why all this mushy detail? Did God write the scriptures so that we could all experience warm, cozy feelings on a Sunday morning? Or maybe so that we would, did God write this so that we would feel broken and lonely inside because we don't have this kind of love? Because we don't have personally what Isaac and Rebecca are experiencing? Did God write the scriptures for that reason? Why the repeated glowing stories in the scriptures of seeking, finding, and sacrificing for lifelong love? Why do we read this over and over again, especially when we know and we realize that that is behind me or I've never had that? Is the Bible, is the scriptures hope for only a certain class of people? Thankfully, the Apostle Paul gives us the primary purpose of every romantic love story in the scriptures. He writes of this in Ephesians 5 verses 22 through 33. In this passage, we are given some earth-shattering commands that are so upside down to our culture, yes, even our Christian culture, that many Christians today fully reject this scripture, this passage of scripture as applicable to them today. Let's read together, beginning in Ephesians 5, verses 20, beginning in verses 22. Paul says, wives, he's speaking to the church, wives, Submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. That's one sentence to begin with. That is, that's quite the sentence. Verse 23. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. Christ is the head of the church, all of us. He calls the church Christ's body and is himself its savior. Christ is the savior of the church. Verse 24. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Verse 25. Husbands, it's our turn. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. All men sitting here in the church should be imagining a man hanging on a cross, dying. That's what he's talking about. Men, love them as Christ loved his church. To the cross. Verse 26. The reason why. That he, Christ, might sanctify her, the church, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. Verse 27, so that he, Christ, might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. It's that oneness. Verse 29, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes And cherishes it 
just as Christ does the church. Just think about the last time you smashed your thumb with a hammer and you know what he's talking about. We love and cherish our, our bodies. He says, love your wife the same way. Verse 30, because we are members of his body. He's saying, we the church are members individually Members of the collective body of Christ. That's how he loves us. Now Paul points back all the way to Genesis in the very beginning. In verse 31, he quotes, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And now here's the main thing we all should take away from Ephesians 5 and from Genesis 24. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it, he's talking about marriage, the marriage, the first wedding in Genesis, marriage refers to Christ and the church. Verse 32, I'll read it again. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it, marriage, refers to Christ and the church. A mystery is something that was once hidden in past ages that has now been revealed. The, the, the cloak that's hiding this thing, it's made it kind of like we're not quite sure what's underneath the gift wrapping. You know, like, what is it? What is it? We don't know. That's the mystery. But in Christ Jesus, it has been ripped off when we see the truth now. That's what a mystery is. He's saying that, that this mystery, marriage, it has been hidden in past ages, but now in Christ Jesus, the point of marriage has been revealed. It is a picture of Christ's love for his church. That has, has always been the point of marriage. To point us, to give us an illustration, a picture, a glimpse of God's love for his people. I am convinced by scripture that every marriage from the very beginning was intended to be this miniature reflection of God's love for his people, of Christ's love for his church. I am convinced of it. And that I'm also convinced that every positive biblical story of romantic love, like we saw in Genesis 24, I am convinced that every single one of them is designed to point our eyes to this same truth. Romantic love, which is the adventure of seeking, finding, and sacrificing for lifelong love. Each one of these stories is intended to give God's people a growing desire for and joy in being sought after, being found, and being purchased at great price. With the end result that we as a people belong to Jesus Christ. These stories of the bridegroom and his bride awaken us to the joy. To this joy of being searched for, found and purchased. And ultimately, the wedding day is what we are looking for. That one day we will be welcomed into the wedding feast in heaven which Revelation tells us about, and the New Testament hints at throughout, that the church is the bride, and Christ is the bridegroom. That Christ welcomes His bride 
into the wedding feast and we collectively rejoice together. This is the picture. Now men, especially, maybe women as well, but men especially, we must put aside our concerns about this illustration, about this picture, our concerns about the physical and sexual union and and our understanding of this. We need to put that aside, our worries and our concerns about this picture aside. We do not marry Jesus as individuals. The people of God as a whole collectively are one bride. So people says, I'm married to Jesus. That's a misunderstanding. The church is the bride. The collective people of God is one bride. Also, men do not become female in heaven. It's okay. You're all right. The point is not the physical or gender. It's not the point of the illustration. The point of the illustration is the incredible, unexplainable joy and excitement, anticipation and exhilaration, the ecstasy of the wedding day and the marriage. That is the point. The physical points to the spiritual, the spiritual reality. One of the most beautiful biblical illustrations of Christ's love for his people is that of the bridegroom and the bride. Which this bride which he purchased at great price. And this reality is our hope as Christians. That God has gone before us to secure the promised end. He secured the wedding day. He's already paid for it. He is preparing a place. And he is coming back for us. That is our hope. Our hope is that he is steadfast in his love. Trustworthy and powerful to keep His promises. Our hope is that Jesus Christ is the bridegroom. That he's preparing a place for us. And that he will one day return for his bride. His people. And will welcome us into that unexplainable joy. That we only have a glimpse of now. In human marriages. If you're sitting here today in marriage. And romantic love only puts a sour taste in your mouth then rejoice because it is only the shadow marriage is a wonderful thing and I am not downing marriage I encourage people to seek find and rejoice in marriage if that is God's will for you seek his path walk in his way he will lead you but if you never have that joy here on earth rejoice be comforted It is the shadow of the eternal reality that is so great and wonderful that even our earthly marriages will seem but a small thing in compared to our eternal joy with the bridegroom, our Savior. So rejoice, be glad, be comforted. This is but a moment, this life, all eternity for that That marital bliss awaits you if you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior. In closing, John records his God-given vision of that glorious wedding day in heaven. He writes in Revelation 19 verses 6 through 7, 
Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, which means praise be to God, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give Him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and His bride has made herself ready. That's all of us. Christian life is one of trusting God, acknowledging that He is who He says He is, and then living life in step with the straight paths that God puts before us, which will ultimately one day lead to the wedding feast of the Lamb. The Lamb, the Christ, who purchased His bride from the slave blocks of sin at great personal price. That is our Lord. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for this beautiful picture of God's love for His people. For your power to save. You are mighty to save. Lord, I pray if anyone sitting here today has never experienced the joy of being forgiven, adopted, and received by the Lord Jesus Christ, I pray that they would not leave here today without that hope. Without Jesus Christ as our Savior, as the bridegroom who has purchased us at great personal price. Without that hope, we have no hope. All other hopes are vanity. It's like like mist that vanishes. Lord, would you convince and convict, and with the Spirit of God, through the words of God, cut deeper than any two-edged sword into the depths of our doubts and fears and unbelief. And would you cut it away so that we can rejoice in all that you have already accomplished for us and so that we can walk in the paths that you have for us, for your glory and for our ultimate good and joy. In Jesus' name, amen.